If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Our modern fascination with true crime is nothing new. Just like us, our early modern ancestors devoured sensational stories of grisly deaths and mysterious motives. And this is something that Blessing Adams reveals in her new book, Great and Horrible News, which explores nine cases of murder from between 1500 and 1700. Blessing has also written an article about early modern murders that were revealed through supernatural means for BBC History magazine. I spoke to her about this strange phenomenon and what it's like to be a police officer turned historian. Please be aware that this podcast includes discussion of infant death and suicide. In your book, Great and Horrible News, you delve into nine murder cases from early modern England. So we're talking about 1500 to 1700 here. Why do you think that crime and murder in particular is an interesting window onto the social history of this period? What kind of things does it tell us about? Murder is one of those things that can affect anybody. A lot of the time when we're hearing about this period of history, we tend to hear about the kings and the queens, uh, the courtiers, the more important people. But the thing about murder and crime is it affects everyday people. And that's what really interests me, is I'm interested in the lives of everyday people. And everyday people who are going through the the worst possible experiences of of their lives, uh, enormous stress. And it it could just really reveal the human nature at its most extreme and traumatic. So, yeah, that's what I find most interesting, really. I was fascinated to read in your intro that before you became a researcher and a historian, you were a police officer. So how does that shape your approach to the history of crime? You know, I've been thinking about that quite a lot because I knew it was a question that I was going to get asked. And um, it gives me, I think, an insight into what people would have been seeing and thinking and feeling, perhaps, because a lot of the things I'm reading about when I'm going through the historical record are things that I myself have experienced. So I've um, I've been to post-mortems, I've um, investigated crimes, I've often been the first person at the scene of um, a sudden or violent death. Um I've spoken with witnesses and victims. I've interviewed suspects. So as I'm going through and exploring the way that crimes are investigated in the early modern period, it's very similar to a lot of the things that I myself did in my own job. Obviously not exactly the same, but yeah, as it, it just gives me, I think, a little bit of insight perhaps. Yeah, that's so fascinating. What do you see as some of those um, similarities and what perhaps are, are some big differences? One of the cases I look at in my book is um, a murder that has been dressed up to look like a suicide. And the coroner and his jury have been called to examine this hanging corpse and they have to decide what's going on here. And the jury, as they're examining this corpse, they're not trained medical professionals, they're everyday people, but because they live in the early modern period, they have been to hangings. They they know what a hanged corpse looks like. So, and in my own experience in the police, I too have been to hangings. I know what a hanged corpse looks like, but I'm not a trained medical professional. So 
As I'm walking through the investigation and these jurymen who are examining this corpse in quite close detail and they're drawing on their own lay experience on what hanged bodies look like, I'm also drawing on my own lay experience. So it's that sort of thing where I can draw sort of like comparisons between the cases I'm writing about and then my own experiences um, investigating suicides when I was in the police. So, yes, that's one of the things that was sort of like the... um, the similarities and then the differences, goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, I imagine. A lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. Um, there's things, there's things that are so familiar when you're when you're looking at um, historical crime and people as they're responding to uh, historical crime, and you think to yourself, "Gosh, you know, that's how I'd feel. That that's how I'd probably respond to that." And then there's other things that seem very foreign and very difficult to understand. Uh, one of those things is. Um, how women were treated uh, if they were delivered of a, a, a miscarriage or stillborn child. They were automatically presumed to have been criminal, to have murdered that child. The guilt was presumed before innocence, and the way that those women were treated were as suspects from the get-go. The burden of proof was on them. And the attitudes and the way that these women were written about was incredibly cruel and adversarial, and they were definitely treated like the enemy. Um, so that's that's a, a mindset that I find very difficult to get behind. It's incredibly interesting um, to read and to, to write about, but it's also incredibly difficult to wrap your head around. Another interesting similarity that, that you pull out between um, the early modern period and today is that early modern people were just as fascinated or obsessed by crime as we are today, you know, with our true crime podcast and our, our serial killer documentaries. They just consumed these stories in different media. Can you tell us a bit about the stories that they were so intrigued by and, and how these stories were spread? Yes, it's really interesting because I I, I feel like a lot of the, um, the, the most popular true crime stories that people were writing and reading about in the early modern period reflected a lot of the, um, the fears and anxieties that the the public were experiencing in those days. And I feel like that's true today as well. So if you were to read just early modern true crime publications, you would get the impression that women were killing machines and (laughs) were responsible for the majority of homicides in the early modern period. A vast majority of the literature uh, writing about true crime in the early modern period is about women. Of course, in truth, if you look at the, uh, the, the historical statistics, women committed very few homicides. The majority were committed by men. But the anxiety and the obsession with the early modern audiences, what they wanted to read about was murderous women because it was something that they were frightened of. You know, they were frightened of women that were breaking the boundaries of um, societal expectations, um, women that were traitors to their sex, women that were not domestic or obedient. These were things that were concerning to the public. So when women murdered, my God, that was that was huge. So if uh, it was something that really sort of like dominated the presses and and, and other female centric crimes as well, like I said before, um, infanticide and miscarriage and uh, witchcraft really dominated the um, true crime presses when in fact they they accounted for a very, very small portion of actual crimes that occurred in any modern period. And something I found really intriguing in your intro was the definition of murder in this period? Because as you say, it was a bit broader than today, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, there were, there were different categories of murder. So um, what I mean by it being broader, because the, the definition of murder in the early modern period was actually quite static. And apart from the 1624 statute on infanticide, which did accuse women of being guilty 
before they were proved innocent, there was very little change in the definition of murder. So what I meant was by murder being a broad category was it included suicide. So suicide was believed to be a species of self-murder. Uh, it was not called suicide in this period. It was called phalo de se, which is Latin for you commit a felony against yourself, you murder yourself. So people who committed suicide, um, that they were treated as murder suspects they murdered themselves um and the scene of death for a suspected suicide was a crime scene to be investigated as a murder and this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You do have a case, a really striking, a really sad case, actually, in your book of a suicide of a man called John Temple, who had quite a remarkable short life. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that story. Yes, the story of John Temple is really sad. Um, He was uh, a young man whose father, Sir William Temple, was uh, quite a famous and influential politician. And he pushed his son at quite a young age into uh, the political sphere and very early on, he found himself Secretary of War. Do we know how old he was when he was Secretary of War? Not exactly. I, I believe he was very young, maybe 19, 20, so um, wow. quite young. <laughs> quite young indeed. And he was the only surviving child of Sir William as well, so there was a lot of pressure on him to succeed in the political sphere. Um, he failed spectacularly. It, it, it was uh, a combination of just inexperienced youth. It was just the wrong job for him. He he couldn't perform, he couldn't succeed. And it, this was a time in um, history when it was very important for you to uphold your codes of honour, to be honourable, to be seen, to be performing your civic duty, um, to be performing your um, familial duty as a son to your father. And he believed he'd failed so spectacularly. So he unfortunately um, put himself in a situation where he was standing in a boat that was shooting through the rapids of the water under the River Thames and he allowed himself to fall in. And it's one of these strange instances of suicide where he didn't so much deliberately throw himself off the boat, but he put himself in a situation where he allowed himself to be killed. So he was sort of straddling that that difficult line between was this passive suicide, was an active suicide? Was, was this man guilty of murdering himself? Or was this something quite different? Was this misadventure? Was this an accident? So yeah, it's quite an interesting case, sort of like teasing out the distinctions between what was self-murder and what was accidental death. So, mm, And it has some really interesting themes in it, doesn't it, about honour and the nature of an honourable death and when suicide could be, in quote marks, honourable and when it was seen as dishonourable. Yes, it's incredibly complex because one of the main themes that I talk about in this book is um, how utterly reviled suicide was in the only one period. And I think that comes across quite strongly in a couple of chapters that I write about. So when I do get to this um, chapter about John Temple and I start discussing the subject of honourable suicide, um, I imagine a lot of people are going, uh? Because <laughs> it, it does come across just how strongly the early moderns felt against suicide. So yeah, the idea of honourable suicide was really hard for the early moderns to wrap their heads around. But at the same time it was something that they they did 
oddly admire as well. There were the these figures from history who were who were honourable suicides. People like Cato, uh, people like Lucretia, who um, who stabbed herself after being raped. These were people that were admired, although not to be emulated. So. Um, it, it was quite interesting how the early moderns thought about honourable suicide. It was definitely something that they they struggled with. And I think that they did admire it, but at the same time, it was just something that it was to be admired in other people. So to return to your cases of more straightforward murders, when you were looking through all these cases and the historical records, were there recurring motives that you found coming up again and again? And were they similar to motives for murder today? Absolutely. And the thing is, it also it depends as well what sources you're reading, um, depending on what motives you get, because the majority of murders committed in the early modern period were, were not that exciting. They were things like barroom brawls and sadly things like domestic homicides, husbands beating their wives to death and things like that. These were things that you'll find in the coroner's records, but they don't really write about in the true crime pamphlets because no one's really interested if someone gets stabbed in an alleyway. Um, so the the cases that are more exciting to the public were exactly the ones we were talking about, ones that could incite some sort of moral outrage in the reader, cases about robbers, um, highway robbers, exciting things like that that could really get the blood pumping. Not so much in, in the domestic sphere, not so much husbands that kill their wives, but wives that kill their husbands, sensational. You'll read about that an awful lot. <laughs> so that one as well. Um, and passionate murders, so murders that are instigated by love or jealousy or things like that. They do crop up, but I don't think they grab the public imagination as much as the ones that people could feel were motivated by um, evil, sinful things. And a lot of them, I guess, are about people subverting the roles that society has put them in. So like you say, women killing their their husbands, mothers killing their children. Those particularly, I guess, excited people's imaginations. Yes, because it was so shocking and it was so out of the ordinary. And these were these were very rare crimes. Um, but when they did happen, they were so shocking. And it's it's not so dissimilar, really, to the way a lot of sensational murders are reported today. They are incredibly rare, especially the ones where it is mothers killing their children um, or, or those sorts of crimes. They happen very rarely, but when they do, you really hear about it in the presses. So one of the most interesting aspects of these cases that you bring forward is, as you say, what happened after the murders, how they were investigated. So I wonder if we could turn to that for a moment. What were some of the key techniques for investigating a murder at this time, before forensics, before fingerprints, before CCTV? Yes, OK. And before the police force as well. There was no organised <laughs> yeah. police force in this day and age. Um, but that didn't mean that there was nobody there to investigate the crimes. So I guess in, in the place of what you would call, say, a, a modern day police force or detective, um, you would have sort of like, the it would be spread over multiple multiple officials. So you, the the magistrates and the judges um, would help to conduct the overall murder investigations. But where I really put my focus, my particular interest, is I'm interested in the uh, role of the coroner in the early modern period and how so much of his role seems to be that of the murder investigator, the detective. Um, it wasn't just his job to discover the cause of death when he was uh, examining a, a body or a crime scene. It was also his job to try and figure out who did it. And the, the coroner's jury acted as a grand jury in many ways. Well, it, it was its own thing. It was a coroner's jury. But um, from that verdict, then people could be indicted for murder and murder trials could then go ahead. So 
not too dissimilar today, really. Yes, so the, the, the coroner from, from the get-go would be called as soon as the body would be found. And he would then begin his investigation, his examination. He could question suspects. He could question witnesses. Um, and he could examine evidence. He could call in surgeons if he needed to, to perform some sort of autopsy on the body. It would have been a lot more of a rudimentary autopsy than we're used to today, but they did have surgeons and um, physicians that could do autopsies or postmortems, as we call them in this country. Definitely they had sophisticated um, investigators. They weren't medically trained, but through experience, they could become quite good at their jobs. And they also had some slightly more unusual tactics, um, didn't they? I'm thinking here of a thing called Wondrous Discovery. Yes, well, Wondrous Discovery, um, I guess I should explain what that is quite briefly. It was uh, the belief in the early modern period that... um, God took a, a direct interest in the uh, in the investigation of murder. It, it wasn't believed that God was involved in the murders. That was the devil's job. So the devil would influence people to commit murders. And then God would see this outrage and he could not allow it to stand. So um, he, he would work divine signs to reveal murder and to reveal murderers to the authorities. And this could come around in many ways. So what I write about in my article is I open with a sad case of um, a woman who had killed her baby and then buried it in a shallow grave in a churchyard and a dog comes along and he scrapes up the earth and uncovers the body and then the body is discovered. So the way that was interpreted by the early moderns is this isn't an animal instinctively scavenging a corpse out of the ground. This was God directing a dog to uncover the body. This was a divine animal doing a divine deed. So from there then the the authorities could then investigate the murder but it was felt like this is God's will and he's showing us the way through these signs. Yeah, and there are some remarkable cases of this um, that you talk about in the article. One involves a man committing a murder and then essentially feeling like he's been found out by crows. Yes, so um, the the record that I got that story from was quite brief, but um, what it boiled down to was there was a a chap in Norfolk who had committed a murder. It doesn't explain what the murder was or who. and he was walking down the road one day and there was a flock of crows just in the field and they were cawing and cackling at him. And he just started to become obsessed with the idea that these birds were cawing and cackling and um, speaking to him and re- were going to reveal the fact that he was a murderer and had committed this crime. And... Um, Once they started flying and flapping around, it got too much for him. And he ran to the local justice of the peace and handed himself in. I think what's quite interesting about this is obviously the crows weren't speaking to him. They weren't telling him to hand himself in. It was probably his own guilty conscience at work there. And he was reading signs into the crows. But he lived at a time where he believed wholeheartedly in the verity of miraculous signs. So... I don't don't think he would have understood it was his guilty conscience at work. I think it was his true belief in miraculous signs that that made him so afraid and caused him to hand himself in. Which is fascinating, isn't it? Because this this idea of wondrous discovery, even if it didn't work in the way people thought it did, it clearly had a power in uncovering crimes. It did, yes, it had a power. It compelled people to hand themselves in and it affected the way people thought about the discovery of bodies. But it was also something that was used in an official capacity as well during coroner's inquests with this um, quite fascinating phenomenon called cruentation, which was the belief that if a murderer drew near to his victim or lay his hands on the victim or spoke the victim's name, then the dead body would start to bleed or blush or perhaps um, open its eyes. It It would show some sort of sign in 
the corpse that the murderer was near. And this was something that coroners often tried to induce during their inquests. And it wasn't unusual for a coroner to have a body laid out in public view and then start ushering in a line of suspects and saying, right, you lay your hands on the corpse. Now you lay your hands on the corpse. And obviously, if the corpse bled, it was probably just natural post-mortem hemorrhaging. But I imagine the coroner was watching the face of every single suspect that was being led into that room being made to lay their hands on the corpse. So was coronation real? No, probably not. But people believed in it and it was being used in coroner's inquests um, to try and sniff out potential guilty parties in local communities. It's fascinating stuff. So all of the cases in your book are really affecting, I think because you're able to tell them in so much detail from the sources that are available to you. Many are disturbing and many are very sad. When you were working through the records, which stories stayed with you the most? I wonder if you could share one or two with us. Yes, so I think I was most affected by um, the bloody midwife of Poplar, um, which was uh, a case from... 1693. And it was essentially about a midwife who also moonlit as a a nurse. And what that meant was that she took in um, orphaned and foundling children who um, were in the care of the parish, and she would be paid to take those children and raise them. And the idea was is that she would receive a yearly payment from the overseer of the poor to raise these children. So what she was really doing was taking a one-off payment from the uh, overseers of the poor to take these children and then just disappear with them. So the overseer the poor were happy to get these foundlings off their books they weren't interested in them and she was happy to be paid to take the babies and then sadly what she was doing was she was um, neglecting the babies and just leaving them to wither and die uh, in her house and she lived in quite a grand house in quite a rich district uh, quite a rich area Uh, and then this was going on under the noses of her neighbours and after a while people started to become suspicious Um, there was all sorts of strange goings on in and out of her house and after a while the authorities uh, were forced to take action after many failed sort of like attempts by the neighbours to get something done about this strange woman. And they unlocked the cellar and they went down and they found the corpses of uh, four babies. Uh, And they also found um, another child that was still living which sadly died soon afterwards. And the conditions of those children was described in quite a lot of detail in the reports that I was reading. Um, I did include some of the detail in the book, but not all of it. I thought it was important to get across to the reader just how horrific this case was. Um, But I, I, I felt like I perhaps had to draw a line in some cases as well as sort of like how much information I included as well. But yes, it was an incredibly sad and distressing case. So another incident that you look at is the trial of Spencer Cooper. Tell us about that story. When I was writing this chapter, I was working from the court transcript and it was quite popular in the early modern period for crime reporters to sit in the courtroom with their little notebooks and they'd be writing in shorthand and they would write down everything verbatim. And then as soon as the trial was over, they'd they'd rush out, write it up and get it out (laughs) as true crime pamphlets because people found trial transcripts super dramatic, super fascinating, and I do as well. So it was a really exciting one to read. But... um, 
what I find most interesting about this one is you're hearing a lot of people's authentic voices. Their voices were recorded as they were speaking, as witnesses, as uh, suspects at the trial. So yes, to get back to it, so the trial of Spencer Cooper. So um, this was involving a, a murder of a young woman called Sarah Stout, and uh, he was the last person to see her alive, and he was accused of her murder. Now, Spencer Cooper was quite a successful barrister, and he represented himself at the trial, which, which is quite fortunate for him, because in this period, the accused, the prisoner's uh, at the bar, they weren't allowed a counsel. They had to defend themselves. So in most cases, people were left to sink. Luckily for Spencer Cooper, he knew how to defend himself. He was a barrister. So he puts up quite a, a robust defence at this trial. And um, it, it's quite fascinating because it's one of the first trials in English legal history where um, forensic evidence and empiric evidence was so central to the trial. So the Stout family and the Cooper family were political allies and they were friends. And um, Spencer and Sarah were children of that family. So they met through that connection. They went to dinner parties together. They became friends. They socialised together uh, whenever Spencer was in town. He lived in London, but he would visit um, a, a lot to do his work there as well. So yes, Spencer was um, accused of Sarah's murder because they they were friends and um, he was the last person to see her alive. He was supposed to be staying the night at her house and with her mother and chaperones following a dinner party. And then the, the maid heard them leaving the house late at night and then Sarah never came home. So she walked out of the door, nobody saw her leave. And then she was never seen again. And her maid and her mother sat up all night waiting for her. Her body was discovered the next morning by a, a mill owner. It was caught up in some um, wooden poles that were um, sifting out debris from the water. She was caught up in it, still in her clothes. And she was dragged out of the water. And that was when it was discovered, oh, my God, this is Sarah who killed her. And the finger was pointed straight at Spencer because he was the last one to see her alive. And how successful were his attempts to argue his case and get off? I think they were incredibly successful. And I think they were incredibly um, powerful as well. I think I think he did an absolutely fantastic job. But the thing was, is that he was accused of the murder, but there was very little evidence to actually nail him down on that. And the prosecution was going on a lot of circumstantial evidence as well, whereas Spencer was absolutely determined to stage the most robust defence he possibly could. And there's this wonderful scene where... Um, the defence have got their barber surgeon, an untrained medical profession, on the stand about to give evidence about the post-mortem that he uh, performed. And Spencer stands up and says, hold on, I have my own expert witnesses. I have 10 eminent physicians from London and they all troop in in one big go. And I could just imagine the looks on people's faces in the courtroom as you've got this one untrained, slightly dodgy barber surgeon standing there and uh, then you have these 10 physicians walking in that are university educated they're incredibly um eminent men in their field so this was a tactic that spencer used time and again if the defense brought forth an, a, an expert witness then spence would bring forth someone who was 10 times more uh, effective than that witness there's a lot of experimentation going on especially around the question of was sarah stout murdered or was she drowned? And this trial goes into quite a lot of detail about the condition of her body as it was found in the water, um, the results of the post-mortem. And there's a lot of medical evidence being batted back and forth between expert witnesses. So it's really exciting and really dramatic. I say it's, it's quite entertaining to watch, but it's also incredibly sad because at the heart of this trial, we do have a young woman 
that has mysteriously died. And that's something that I do keep trying to come back to time and again, sort of like throughout the chapter is saying that this, this was entertainment. This was exciting for the people watching, but her parents were sitting there as well, having to watch this trial uh, and watch these people battling over the question of who murdered her daughter. So yeah, it's, it's murder trials are incredibly dramatic and I think upsetting um, in many ways. So if listeners were to go away and read your book, what would you want them to take away from these cases? What do you think it can tell us about the period or just generally? I think what I'm trying to get across with this book is that the early moderns in many ways feel very familiar when I'm reading their accounts of the early moderns, not just of murder, but of people who are reacting to murder, the families, the friends, the victims, and the witnesses. And their reactions felt very honest and very familiar to me in that they were genuinely horrified. They were genuinely distressed and upset. And there was a real need to see justice done. And justice done thoroughly and fairly as well. So that was one thing that I was really interested in. And the other thing that I'm interested in is that these are stories mostly about everyday men and women. And there's so much we can learn about the the minutiae, the day-to-day lives of these people, and then how their lives are put under so much stress as they were going through these extraordinary experiences. So that, again, is something that I really wanted to explore in this book. That was Blessing Adams. Her book, Great and Horrible News, Murder and Mayhem in Early Modern Britain, is available now, published by HarperCollins. You can read an article from Blessing, which includes several other cases of wondrous discovery that we didn't mention here, in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which will be on sale from mid-April. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.